Not only is he really good at it, it just gives me a few extra minutes to, to get ready. But more importantly, he's really good at it. it. Makes me look bad. All right, good morning once again. I want to invite you to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. There should be a Bible in the pew there in front of you. If you don't have your own Bible this morning, we're in Luke chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 33 through 39 this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And we're going to end chapter 5 today, and we're going to start week. We'll be back. Okay. We've got a lot to cover in these six verses, so we're going to get to it right away. And we really need to cover these as a unit, as we'll see here in just a few moments. Uh, because if you're like me in any way, when you read this portion and this passage of Scripture on just kind of a cursory reading, you're kind of left with some more questions than you are with the answers. And I think that has to do in a large part with the distance we have in uh, culture and time and the separation between those and language. And we're kind of, we kind of read this and we're left scratching our heads. Plus, if we add on top of that the fact that Jesus is going to use a parable uh, to teach, which he did about a third of the time when he taught, it adds on a layer of difficulty in trying to understand exactly what our Savior is trying to say. So I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to, with me for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. God's Word says this, And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was, telling them, was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, preserving it for us to have this very day. We pray for those who do not have your word in their own language, Lord, that you would raise up a people to go and translate and to teach and disciple the multitudes across this world. Father, we're so grateful for you. Help us, help this word to instruct our minds and our hearts to see you more glorious and more desirable than anything we know on earth. So, Father, we just give this time to you and just pray that it would honor you much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when we read this, we kind of end up with some questions like, uh, first of all, what is he talking about here, right? What, what's this bridegroom attendant of the bridegroom stuff? What's all this new wine, new wineskin stuff going on? Well, that's what we kind of hope to answer this morning and shed a little light onto what Jesus is talking about here and really try to get to the heart of what he's communicating. 
And this passage could really be broken down into three sections. Really, the accusation, the refutation, and the explanation. So first of all, we need to briefly talk about where we've been. uh, Because in our text, in verse 33, it says there, And they said to him. Now, as we've noted many times, Luke really seems to be getting to the point here. It's, and it's the brevity of words that usually means or indicates to us that he's got something more important to, for us to deal with as to like where this is happening or when or who besides Jesus, right? And that's why he uses terms like in Luke 5.1 when he says, now it happened, or in 5.12 where he says, while he was in one of the cities, or one day he was teaching in Luke 5.17. Now, this isn't to say that Luke is not a meticulous historian, because he most certainly is. But when it comes to these individual narratives of Jesus, it's not the date or the location that is incredibly important. But what is important is what Jesus actually did and said. What is important is the point or the message that Jesus is trying to communicate. And that's why he uses these abbreviated uh, starts in these texts here. So if we back up just a little bit, Steve uh, showed us that Jesus was eating and drinking in Matthew's house, and the outcasts of the society are there, right? The tax collectors. These were Matthew's friends. Now, if you remember, the tax collectors were despised because when they collected a tax, they regularly took in more than they were supposed to to take their own cut. Basically, they were crooks. They were shysters, right? And when Jesus wanted to use the opposite of of extremes when he was teaching about the differences between the Pharisees, who were supposed to be this pinnacle of religious spirituality, and the most putrid and vile of all society at the other end, he regularly used the tax collector as that illustration to show that chasm. In fact, when we look throughout the book of Luke, you're going to find that the tax collectors, they're often paired with sinners, and swindlers, the unjust, and the adulterers. So this is not the best company to be kept in if you are a tax collector. And we also saw in verse 30 of last week that the Pharisees and the scribes were there as well. Remember that the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day, and their scribes were the super elite with all the laws and regulations that the Pharisees had to come up with. Their job was to translate or apply it. Now, upon first reading of verse 33, we might think that it's just the Pharisees that are questioning Jesus here. But I want you to flip back two books of the Bible with me to the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, because I want you to see who the they are in order for us to have this passage make a little more sense. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 14. Now remember, when we first started teaching about Luke, we said it's kind of like a three-lead EKG, right, in relations to the other Gospels. So we want to take a look at what Matthew has to say. So Matthew 9.14. Now if we notice, first of all, in verses 10 through 13 of Matthew 9, we have that parallel account of Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and Pharisees. And they're all indignant about it, right? Same thing that Steve went over last week. But in Matthew 9.14, notice that it says there, Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, stop right there for a moment. We see in Matthew 9 that it's actually the disciples of John. And that would be the John of whom we've 
preached about here, John the Baptist, right? But Matthew records for us that it's the disciples of John asking this question. Now flip forward to the book of Mark with me. Mark chapter 2, same parallel account. Mark chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And look at verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Again, Mark records for us in verses 15 through 17, the same interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees questioning Jesus, eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so all three synoptic gospels have the parallel sequence of events. They're all the same. But I want you to look at verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, and it says there, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to him and came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not? Well, Matthew says that it's the disciples of John. Mark says that it was both the disciples of John and the Pharisees, and Luke implies that it's the Pharisees. Oh no, the Bible contains contradictions, therefore it's untrue and Christianity is totally wrong, right? Wrong. What you have here is that both of these groups, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, hanging out together doing the same thing, and they want to know the answer to the same question. And that sort of takes us back a little bit, doesn't it? It kind of surprises us because when we think about the disciples of John, we, we think about the good guys, don't we? we? We think about they're on the right team because John's the forerunner to the Messiah. And he was the one that got to point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptized Jesus and all those other things. John got to see the substance of the shadow of the Old Testament. But when we think about the Pharisees, We think about them being the bad guys, right? The sneering, hypocritical, legalistic, self-righteous, religious leaders. And so what are these two groups of people doing out, uh, doing hanging out together and questioning Jesus for? Why are the good guys and the bad guys questioning the ultimate good guy? Well, we've got to remember that not all of the people who came to John in the wilderness actually got to see what John saw. Not all who went into the wilderness and repented and were baptized by John the Baptist came to a saving faith in Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, if we would keep going through Luke into Acts, we get to chapter 18, verse 24. We meet a man named Apollos, Acts 18, 24. And he came to Ephesus, who it says that he was mighty in the scriptures. And he was teaching accurately the things about Jesus. But it says that he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila, they take him aside and they teach him the things of God more accurately. So here's this fellow who's been running around all over Asia teaching people that the Messiah is coming, that they should repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's totally unaware that Jesus has actually come, died, and been resurrected, and that the Holy Spirit has come. Now, this event here is all occurring around 54 A.D. This is like 20-some years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even if we go into Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul comes along and he finds some disciples. And he asks this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, Right? And then so Paul says to them in verse 3, Paul says, Into what then were you baptized? 
And they said to him, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the way into the first and second centuries, there still remained disciples of John the Baptist. And disciple just simply means a student of, right? Someone who submits to another's teaching. And you say, well, how can that be that there's still these disciples of John the Baptist running around? Well, Gutenberg hadn't done the printing press yet, right? They didn't have Bibles and bookstores to talk about Jesus. We have we got to remember that the church, was, church wasn't birthed through the internet. It wasn't started with a mother church in Jerusalem and then a bunch of satellite churches uh, streaming in the teachings of Paul and Peter into the various locations. It was all built upon word of mouth. It was built upon missionaries and it was built upon faithful men and women who would obey Christ and go into all the world to make disciples. And so not all of the disciples of John knew anything more than that they wanted to get right with God. That they were looking for the Messiah to come. And they, their baptism by John meant that they were dedicating their lives to holier living. And so naturally, when they wanted to get right with God, who are they going to turn to? Whose lives are they going to try to mimic? The Pharisees, right? The spiritually elite of Israel. Everyone thought, even the disciples of John, that the way the Pharisees lived and fasted and prayed, that it was the right way to live before God because they appeared righteous. They had all the right looks. They appeared to be living a life pleasing to God. But in reality, their hearts were far from him. So here comes the charge from them in verse 33. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Now it's interesting here that this is the third in a series of accusations against Jesus, starting back from verse 17. And we're going to deal with the next two next week, all the way from chapter 6 into verse 11. But it's interesting to note that last week, the charge and the accusation was who they were eating with, right? And this week, it's the fact that Jesus' disciples are even eating at all. So what gives? Well, we've talked about fasting in the past, and we're not going to belabor that too much today. But fasting is simply the withholding of food for spiritual purposes. And it was one of the three uh, expressions of piety among the Jews. And it was a highly regarded practice at the time. The other expressions were prayer and the giving of alms. But the Pharisees, they were real big on making sure that everyone knew that they were the godly ones and they did, that they did any of these three. They made sure that everyone knew that they were uber spiritual and so they did these activities publicly so as to try to win the esteem of man. And we see Jesus, he deals with these three things directly and specifically in Matthew chapter 6, 2 through 6 and 16 through 18, when he warns about doing these activities in a hypocritical matter, or manner rather, such as, he says, when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. 
And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearances so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And so what Jesus was telling them was that their public displays of religiosity was gaining them absolutely nothing in the sight of God. What they gained in the applause of man gained them not even an honorable mention from the host of heaven. And that's really a piercing question for us today, isn't it? First of all, we have to ask, does your private, intimate, quiet, alone life with God match the life that you demonstrate before the people of God? You see, we can easily walk in this place. You can paste a smile on your face and you can tell everybody how you're doing. I'm good and you can move along. You can sing all these songs with just the right pitch and you might even have them all memorized. You can make sure you throw something into the offering plate every week. You could even throw up a generalized prayer if you were called to do so and not sound like a total theological dummy. But yet your motivations are not for the glory of God, but they are for the glory of yourself. And in a sense, in a real sense, you would be no more pious than a Pharisee. But when it counts, when it is just you and it's God, do you truly long to be with him? Is he the last person you talk to at night and he's he the first person that you thank in the morning for his mercy while you slept? Do you long to honor God when nobody else is around looking? Do you offer your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God with the things that you watch on TV and the things you look at on the internet? And are your thoughts captivated with the glory and the magnitude and the goodness of the infinite God of this universe? The question is not whether you simply agree with the gospel. The question is, is the gospel a reality in your life? Every single one of us, I don't care if you're 13, you're 30, or you're 60. That is the question for you. Are you living the gospel even when you're away from this place? Because you see, I think one of the greatest accusations against the church as a whole is that has to be that the life that the people of God claim... That the Jesus whom we claim to love is not practically demonstrated outside of these four walls. The world sees nothing but Pharisees. And some of you might be in here right now and you're looking at everyone else and you're saying they're fake and I can name them one by one. But the question isn't for you to evaluate them. The question is for you to evaluate yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. The question is for you. Do you have a passion for Jesus Christ? Even when you're gone from here. We don't need any more Pharisees in this world. We've got enough of them running around. But these Pharisees, not only are they doing their private prayer, their prayers and their fasting very sanctimoniously and very publicly, but they did it ritualistically because the Pharisees would fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. 
In fact, we see that in Luke 18, 12, where Jesus is talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector in a parable when the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay the tithes, all of that I get. But the fast that they were practicing wasn't even mandated in Scripture because there was only one fast mandated in the Old Testament, and that was on the Day of Atonement. It comes from Leviticus 16, and it was a time for you to humble yourself and stop and take a look at your own sin. We're familiar with the term Yom Kippur, and that's what this is. It's a time of national fasting and examining yourself. Now, there's other fasts that were proclaimed in the Old Testament, but they were usually for a period of mourning or repenting over sin or seeking after God, but they weren't commanded by the Lord. And so the disciples of John and the Pharisees are practicing this twice-weekly fast. And they look to Jesus' disciples and are basically saying, how come you guys aren't being as pious as we are? We're the ones who are the spiritual leaders of this nation. Why aren't you and your disciples doing the same? And just so we're clear, this was a man-made fast here. This was their own creation, their own invention, and it was done in a ritualistic manner and never from a motivation from the heart. And beloved, this has to do with you too. When you come here on Sunday, are you just doing it as a checkbox? Are you delighted to come with the people of God? Not that you have to do it. You are commanded to not, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. But are you coming out of delight rather than of duty? So here comes this refutation of Jesus in verses 34 and 35. In verse 34 it says, And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So Jesus responds by asking them a question, and the gist of what he's saying to them is this, that surely you don't expect the good friends of the bridegroom to be fasting while he's here, do you? You don't expect him to go without food during a wedding, do you? A wedding is a, isn't a time to fast, but a wedding is a time to celebrate and eat. And he's using this illustration of a wedding here, an experience that they would have been familiar with, because a wedding back in those days was a week-long celebration. It wasn't just one day for a couple hours. It was an entire week And so to teach them that since the Messiah has come, meaning him, Jesus Christ, that it was no longer a time to be weeping and mourning and fasting, but that salvation has come. It was a time to laugh and not weep. It was a time to rejoice and not mourn. And he's not condemning fasting here, as we see in the verse 35 there. It says that this was a fast, that basically what he's saying is that this fast is a time of preparation, but a wedding is a time of celebration. He's telling them that rejoicing is an appropriate response to being in the presence of God, which he's already demonstrated to them already that this is a practical reality with him being there. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures Forever. The Lord has come, he's telling them. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The time for hanging your head low is past, but it is time to lift up your head, O ye gates. 
The king of glory may come in. Swing wide, you everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. The Messiah is here. But there are hard hearts. Their blind eyes and their deaf ears, they would not hear of such a thing. Why? Because Jesus did not meet their expectations. He didn't come and remove what they perceived to be the worst enemy, and that was the Romans. But in reality, he would do so. He would come and he would conquer the worst enemy to their soul, and that would be their own personal sinfulness. Even Peter, the chief of apostles, would stumble stumble over this fact when Jesus starts to declare publicly that he must go to the chief priests and the elders and the scribe and suffer many things. And Peter says, God forbid it. And Jesus gives him one of the most stern rebukes in all of Scripture. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. And so we have here in the first time in the Gospel of Luke the fact that Jesus is referring to his own death. We have this delineation of times and events in verse 35, and the change of times is going to produce a change in response. The time of joy will turn to a time of sorrow. The time of celebration will turn to a time of mourning, when the groom will be taken away from the disciples, and then fasting once again will be appropriate. This is an obvious reference to his future crucifixion. And so when Jesus is crucified on the cross, what are the disciples going to do? They're going to deny him. They're going to scatter. They're going to go into hiding. And more than likely, like many of us, when we experience great sorrow and when we express or we have great anguish in our soul, they will fast. We stop eating. Have you ever had any devastating news delivered to you? Has the death of someone ever just rocked your world? You don't start eating, right? You can't eat. You've lost your appetite completely. But when Jesus returns to them in Luke 24, it says in verse 36, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to him, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to him, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy, see that joy restored, that amazement, he said to them, have you got anything to eat? And they gave it to him, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. So what is he communicating to them? The fast is over. It's once again a time to rejoice. So armed with the understanding that Jesus is talking to the disciples of John and the Pharisees about not keeping their man-made feasts here and their external works-based religion, we can understand this parable a little bit more. Look at verses 36 through 39 with me. It says in verse 36, And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for the new 
for he says the old is good enough. So here is Jesus giving them a couple illustrations or a parable, which is basically a comparison of two parts, an illustrative part and a reality part. That's what a parable is. And that's why he would say many times, like, the kingdom of heaven is like, right? Such and such or whatever. But in the first one, he's comparing putting a new piece of cloth onto an old garment, right? No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it onto an old. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Why? Because you would ruin the new garment, first of all, wouldn't you? Say you had a nice pair of jeans, brand new, that you just bought. And you cut a patch out of those jeans to try to sew them onto an old pair of jeans. You've just ruined the new pair. And guess what? When you go to wash the old pair, that new unshrunken cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear away from the old anyway, right? You're not going to match. They're going to be different colors and it's going to tear away. And so the second one is similar to it, the parable of the wineskins. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst in the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So when you made wine in the first century, you would typically use a goat skin as the container. Sounds pretty gross to us, doesn't it? But that's what they use. The first thing you would do is you would crush the grapes, typically with your feet in a wine press, and you would collect the grape juice. And as I was like preparing this, I'm thinking of Lucille Ball uh, doing that little dance in the wine press. But that's not, to, that's not how it worked. But you would squish the grapes with your feet and collect the juice. Then you would take that juice and you would carefully pour that into the goat skin container. And in about six weeks or so, as the fermentation process started to occur and the gases would release, that goat skin would start to expand. It's like shaking up a, a two-liter bottle. You know how that thing is? You open it and it's boom, right? Same concept. So six weeks later, you got this container swollen full of wine. Now, you would never, ever put grape juice, fresh grape juice, into an old skin because it had already had lost its elasticity. And so when those gas would start to release and that container's that big, the pressure's going to build up and cause the skin to burst open and you lose all your wine. It's like kids when you're carrying in a two-liter from the grocery store and you drop that two-liter on the ground as you're bringing it in for mom and you give it to her and mom opens it and it goes everywhere. Same concept, right? So how does this all relate to his teaching them about fasting and rejecting their man-made fast? What the Lord is teaching them here is that you can't take the gospel, which is what he is here to proclaim, and patch it into a works-based religious system. You can't take salvation by faith through grace and patch it into a system of works. That's what Judaism is. He's saying that their cold, dead works, their external means of trying to appease God is dead. It's like trying to put new wine into an old wineskin. It's a waste. It doesn't do any good. Judaism and all its regulations, its ceremony, its rituals, like fasting twice a week, is not compatible with the gospel. That's what he's telling them. And that's essentially the difference between Christianity and every other man-made religious system. One is salvation by grace through faith. All the others, salvation by works. One is divine achievement. 
All others are by human accomplishment. And for us today, this is a stark contrast between Catholicism and evangelical Christianity. Catholicism says, do these seven sacraments and be saved. Evangelical Christianity says, trust on the finished work of Christ and be saved. You are not justified by doing the works of law, but by faith in Christ. This is what Paul defends in Galatians 3 through 6 and Colossians 2. We are justified by faith. And so when you're looking at yourself and you're saying to yourself, I attend church every Sunday, I read my Bible every day, I pray regularly, I give to church in a host of all kinds of causes, I visit the sick, I do this, I do that. Those are all good things. But do you hear the pronoun that's frequently used in all those statements? It's I. I, I, I. You're depending upon your works. You're depending on yourself. If you depend upon anything else but the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're believing in a false gospel. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, aren't I supposed to do all these things? Aren't I supposed to be attending church regularly and, and, and reading my Bible and praying regularly? Yes, you are. You are. But you're not to look at those things to save you. You look to Christ to save you. Don't depend upon your deeds to save you. Depend on Christ to save you. Now, I've got to warn you about this growing trend in America that I just want you to briefly be aware of. And it's called this Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. But basically it says, well, once you get saved by Jesus Christ, then you're going to go back and start doing all of the law. Right? Somehow you're, you're justified by Jesus, but now you're going to go back and start doing those things uh, again to be justified or whatever. Paul re- rebukes this in Galatians 3-6 through and Colossians 2. It is... Uh, a movement that says, yes, we believe in Jesus and we believe he's the Messiah, but we got to understand it in the context of Judaism, right? Acts, remember Acts? I think it's chapter 9. He's, they get this whole list. they got to be circumcised. they got to follow the law. And what did the Jerusalem council come back? They said, no, no, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Stay away from fornication, right? They didn't say, yeah, go back and do the law. But that's what Acts is defending. And then lastly in our, our text here today, 39, he says, no one after drinking the old wine wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough. Those who hold on to a works-based religion like these Pharisees are so dead in their spiritual senses that they don't want to do anything with the gospel. Basically, he's saying to them, you are set in your old ways and you will never change. It's sort of like us when we go to our favorite restaurant. We don't even have to look at a menu and we just say, Give me the sunshine skillet, wheat toast, no no butter, right? You already know what you're going to order. You're set in your ways. But sadly, these Pharisees' minds, they would be oblivious to the life-saving message of Christ and would instead cling to their soul-condemning works and tradition. So this morning, don't think that you're going to add to Jesus to any whatever religious system that you came from to save you. And I think that is what is so miraculous about someone who truly believes in the gospel. Someone who truly leaves their old, worn-out religious system and embraces the gospel. Don't look to your works and your own personal piety to save you. Don't 
look to Jesus as just a patch on top of whatever religious system you came from. Cling to him. Abide in him. Hope in him. And trust in him and him alone to save you. Because if Jesus Christ is all that you ever had, and you are naked and afflicted and destitute and broken, and Jesus Christ is all that you ever possess, you would have everything you would ever need in this life or the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you would come and save us by the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord. Let us cling to him and depend upon him and him alone to save us. Lord, we want to be obedient to you, but we want to be obedient from the heart and not externally like these Judaizers. So, Father, help our heart to find our greatest satisfaction in you and knowing you and obeying you from our innermost being. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.